Welcome back to the Rebuild SoCal Zone podcast. My name is John Swatalski, and I'll be your host for today. Our guest for this week's episode is Dr. Chris Thornburg, founder of Beacon Economics. Welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Thornburg. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you joining us today. You know, we had a conversation at our first podcast ever back in October 2020, and to date, it's still our most listened to podcast. So we're really excited to have you on board, and hopefully we can repeat those numbers and that listening audience again this time. Yeah. Yeah, but no pressure. So listen, since we last talked, the world looked much different than it does today. Uh, COVID had a different form. It had a different impact, meaning there wasn't yet a vaccine. Uh, And since then, Congress really has pumped trillions of dollars into the economy and inflation wasn't the economic or political dominating uh, topic that we see it is today. Supply chains um, weren't necessarily as backed up or backed up at all. And the labor market also looked a lot different. You know, here in Southern California, we didn't see ships stacked up outside of our ports and the so-called great resignation hadn't yet occurred. Right. So in this context, Dr. Thornburg, can you share with us how you're viewing the economy today? Right. And is it really that much different than it was in the fall of 2020? Is my premise inaccurate here? So what do you think? What's the general state of our economy? Yeah, no, that, that's a great place to kick off because it does feel so much different than a year and a half ago. But, you know, it's not really different. And in a sense, you know, if you go back to October when we had that first talk, think of the profound uncertainty. The Q2 GDP number, uh, as we know, of course, was incredibly negative. There were still those talking about this being a multi-year depression type situation. Um, A lot of gloom and doom. But if you kind of go back and listen to the conversation back then, I said, well, this doesn't make any sense. Look, Mm -hmm. there's little doubt that COVID has been a tragic natural disaster. But the history of natural disasters shows us that these episodes as tragic as they are for people, tend not to have long-run problems for the economy. Back then, I said, look, this doesn't make any sense. Yes, this is a serious health situation, but the economic consequences are going to be relatively small from a long-run perspective. But that wasn't the conversation. The conversation, of course, in Washington, D.C., in Sacramento, California, was all about how this thing was an end-of-the-world type situation. And they were proceeding in response to that. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means, to your point, multiple rounds of stimulus. You're talking $4 trillion of quantitative easing on the part of the Federal Reserve. In other words, they stimulated this economy to the nth degree, despite the fact that, honestly, the situation didn't require that. Now, if you fast forward to where we are today, And you think about where this economy is from the supply chain disruptions, the inability to hire people, the fact that asset markets are going through the roof. These are all the direct consequences of the overstimulation of the economy. Take, for example, we'll just start with the Fed, quantitative easing, because inflation, as you've already noted, is one of the biggest concerns that people have right now. When you go back in time to the Great Recession, Um, and you think about the three trillion plus in quantitative easing they did over four or five years, understand that what they did back then was necessary because of the incredible problems hitting our economy being driven by the collapse in that bubble. Household wealth was declining. 
incomes were going down. The housing market saw declining prices, tons of foreclosures. The banking system had tons of loan losses. The financial system was a complete wreck. And these are all deflationary forces. That is to say, they tend to cause prices to go down, which can be really problematic for an economy. So the Federal Reserve reacted accordingly back then to offset those deflationary pressures. Now, you fast forward to today where our two former economists, Bernanke and, and Yellen, are now gone and they've ushered in a lawyer, uh, Jerome Powell. And you know, don't get me wrong, I don't have a problem with lawyers per se, but I wouldn't want one, I don't know, say, fixing my teeth or giving me open heart surgery. I'm not sure why we're comfortable <laughs> having a lawyer run the Federal Reserve. But he was installed. And despite the fact that there was no sign of the problems that Ben Bernanke and Jenny Yellen were dealing with, he basically prescribed the same medicine for the economy, right? So it's almost like back then we had a we had a, a national bout of some serious, pardon the maybe not a good metaphor, but we had a real serious problem with the health of the economy, and they gave strong medicine. Well, this time we didn't have those same problems with the health of the economy, but we're giving them the same medicine. No, it didn't make any sense. We don't have loan losses. We don't have declining wealth. We don't have any of the problems we were dealing with back then. But he threw $4 trillion into the economy anyway. The result of that has been one of the greatest expansions of the money supply we've ever seen. And ultimately, expanding the money supply is the quickest way to create inflation. And lo and behold, we're seeing that result right now. What's most amazing to me is how the Fed continues to be so... Ah, what's the word I'm looking for? Pollyannish about the situation? Well, we still think it's mainly a supply chain effect and a couple of ray hikes will take care of it. Well, no, you, you've expanded the money supply to at least relative to the size of the economy, the largest it's ever been. This is a big problem. And until you go out of your way to absorb some of this excess liquidity by basically selling off all these bonds you've been buying, inflation is going to be with us and be with us for a while. Now, so far, we haven't felt the hit of that because right now the bond markets haven't responded. But at what point in time do the bond markets go, you know, this inflation is the real deal. And suddenly you have mortgage rates going up to, I don't know, 7 8%. What happens then to the economy? These are things in our future. Now, what I'm trying to suggest here is our inability to recognize how the economy was not hit that hard by COVID is now creating very real economic risks in the future path ahead. We have created recession-causing problems where they didn't need to be. You know, that is such a fascinating uh, look at this. My time frame for, for looking at the economy really starts in the winter leading into the spring of, of 2020 and ends, ends today, where you're drawing a much larger picture and, you know, as a former uh, person living in, in the near suburbs of, of Detroit, I saw firsthand what happened with the Great Recession, the collapse of the domestic automobile industry and what right. devastating effects that had. And we haven't seen that. You're, you're correct. We don't see, uh, uh, you know, every 10th home with all of their personal possessions on their front lawn as we exactly. saw then. So there is a, a, such a distinction. And, and so I, I, I'm happy that you, you kind of brought us to here. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, the um, $4 trillion of quantitating easing, pumping money into the supply is will be offset in the future by raising interest rates, very kind of simple 
uh, cause and effect there. And so are you suggesting that it will then take a, a much longer time, years into the future until we're able to retract that $4 trillion plus, therefore in, be able to get inflation under control? Are we looking at that long of a time frame for this? It's very possible. Look, the way to think about it is this way. Once inflation gets going, there's a lot of momentum there. And that momentum is hard to bring under control. We saw that in the 1970s where they had loose monetary policy. We had a number of shocks to the system. And it finally took Volcker in really 1980 to come in and really shock the system, setting off what was at that point in time the worst downturn in the post-World War II period to get inflation out of the system. And even then, we dealt with inflation premiums on debt for over a decade. You saw relatively high interest rates. Yeah, that's absolutely possible in the future here if they don't turn the corner. But again, the biggest issue we have here is this disconnect between what our policymakers are discussing versus the ground level realities, right? Here's another place where the disconnect becomes so profound. And of course, it certainly goes to another big problem that all employers in Southern California across the United States are having, which is keeping a qualified workforce working for you, right? Everybody's quitting. Where's everybody going? Now, you think about that, right? We have this situation where uh, people are quitting, they're leaving their jobs voluntarily, they're moving on. And yet, at the same time, we know there's far fewer payroll jobs today than there were two years ago. And so, mm -hmm. again, you have this strange dichotomy where, on one hand, the government's telling us, oh, things are bad because we don't have as many jobs. But at the same time, workers seem to be making out like bandits. How do you reconcile these two data points? Well, again, there's a little bit of short run and a little bit of long run all involved here. Let's start with the long run. You know, before the pandemic hit, we already had a labor problem in the United States. That is to say, labor shortages. The unemployment rate, uh, I remember, had gotten down to about 3.5% before COVID. And <laughs> that is an incredibly low number, 50-year low. Now, the last administration was bragging that somehow their policies were driving that number. Uh, we'll <laughs> put that to one side since presidents don't have that kind of power on the economy. Why was the unemployment rate so low? Well, it had to do with the fact that boomers were retiring. And the boomers are an incredibly important inflection point in our, in our economy. They were all, you know, born into families of 12 people, uh, 12 kids. They were also traumatized by that. They all went out and had 1.2 kids. And our population wow. pyramid turned into a population column. Now that boomers are retiring, that the generations behind them are not big enough to fill in the gaps, so to speak, right? In fact, if you look at people in their prime working years, uh, 25 to, to 54 years old, the population of folks in that age range was actually starting to decline in 2019 and 2020. It was negative, right? Again, declining birth rate, a lack of immigration. You have a situation where we don't have enough workers. Now, we didn't really feel it because, you know, with a tight labor market, people they get encouraged by their bosses to stick around a little farther. You know, just, just give me another six months. Give me another year. I'll give you a little bit of a pray raise. And you saw people just kind of sticking around. COVID hits, all these people are forced to go home. And of course, at the same time, the, the economy is stimulated, the stock market's up, home prices are up. Two and a half million people decided it was time to retire. Two and a half million people. That's the number. Enormous decline in labor force. By the way, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen this massive decline in labor force 
in any kind of economic downturn, Great Recession, COVID, whatever it is, this was singularly unique. And again, driven by the unique factors of both COVID as well as, of course, where the economy happened to be at this point in time. So two and a half million people retired. Suddenly, there's not enough bodies around anywhere. The competition for workers right now is incredibly intense. And that is why people are, are leaving. That's why we have the great resignation, because people know they have options and they're taking them. Now, the places that are really getting hit by these labor shortages tend to be the places that are trying to recover. That is to say, restaurants and hotels are having a terrible time in particular, because those are the places that closed down during COVID and are now trying to reopen. And those folks they used to hire are no longer around, as the case may be. But of course, you feel the strain of these labor shortages in every part of the economy. And, you know, honestly, remember that COVID caused the two and a half million people to retire, but it's demographics that, that basically introduced labor shortages in the U.S. economy in the long run. And that isn't going to change anytime in the near future. Any employer I talk to right now, I get across to them this basic point. This is not temporary. This is not going away. You need to start thinking about how to do more with less. And that, of course, all has to do with really training and capital deepening and figuring out how to use technology that you just don't need as many people as you did two or three years ago to run your business. We're all going to have to make these adjustments. It is what it is. You know, that's so interesting. The demographics is so often, if not always, left out of the employment discussion. It's not reported in tandem with the latest employment rate or, or the monthly hiring that the Department of Labor reports on. We just don't hear that demographic. So, you know, the average consumer of this just views that everything else is equal and that employment goes up and down. But that just skews the reality of it because when you have two and a half million people leave and you know most of them, they've all done so voluntarily but a lot of them are on the older end of the spectrum if i may it, it changes that and that is if i could uh, be so presumptive to suggest that that in many of places in the economy directly affects inflation so if restaurants have to pay uh, more for their cooks they're going to put that increase in salary right onto your omelet and hash brown, so to speak. <laughs> so to speak, yes. Yeah. So uh, it, it, this has so many tentacles and so many different cause and effects that it's tough to unravel that. And it's really, frankly, tough for the folks we advocate for, construction companies, contractors, and their unionized workers really to to plan for the future. So that's kind of where I want to hone in now. It, it yeah. seems as if we go more into training, into technology, that companies or, or um, industries in manufacturing or in our case in construction may have more of a difficult time finding labor, finding workers to meet the demand. Because as you know, Congress just passed $1.2 trillion into, uh, into infrastructure. So what does all of, all of this mean on the employment side and on the uh, yeah. further stimulus side or further investment side, rather? Well, you know, historically speaking, unions have been, I think, opposed towards labor-saving technologies. Uh, they understandably see that as a threat to the welfare of their union members. Um, and they tend to push back against those kind of changes, those kind of managerial adjustments, as the case may be. What I think that every employer has to do right now is, is sit down 
and and get your unions that you work with to understand that this is the real deal. This is not going to go away when when we get COVID under control. And as a result of that, in many ways, the, the very viability of our businesses that we operate is, is going to be dependent, again, on making investments in these labor-saving technologies. That's even important, I think, for the broader policy framework that this nation is in. If for the last 15, 20 years, the, the biggest watchword has been about inequality, and understandably so. We do see uh, the top 0.1% getting richer and richer, and, and now they're so rich, they're sending themselves up to space just for chuckles, right? Um, and it could be very frustrating. But if you are worried about inequality, at some level, your market solution has arrived. What's amazing is when you think about the, this crazy business cycle we've just been through, Typically, business cycles have a negative impact on earnings, not this business cycle. And if anything, um, earnings growth right now is accelerating, particularly for lower skilled workers. So the opportunities in our economy today are better than ever before. And as opposed to worrying about, if you will, you know, robots are going to steal my machine. Now we have to think about how we can actually use robots to make ourselves all more productive. And ultimately, it's going to make us all better off, as the case may be. So it's a different kind of conversation. It's a different kind of world. And we all have to understand that we're going to have to work together to figure out how to make this happen. Yeah, certainly. It seems quite daunting um, yeah. in that respect. So the next item I, I want to talk to you about, and of course, it's all interrelated, is the supply chain issues. We see that in chips with automobiles, uh, but we see that in you know everyday consumer products that you'd find in a big box retailer. And you all you have to do is you know, drive to the, to the ocean and see all the ships out there. So can you just give us a sense of where we're at and is that going to ease anytime soon? Well, again, this, this goes back to a combination of things. One is the overstimulation of the economy. We like to think that somehow or other the problems in logistics are driven by COVID. That, oh, well, you know, we had some problems with COVID. We don't have enough truck drivers. We don't have enough guys driving ships. And that's the issue we're dealing with. No, no, not really. When Congress came out and threw trillions of dollars at Americans in the form of fiscal stimulus, the problem with most Americans wasn't that they needed money to pay rent. That, again, was not what was going on in the economy. The problem was is that people couldn't spend money. And we gave people even more money to spend when the problem was they couldn't spend the money they had. So when people got this money, they said, well, I do want to spend it. I want to live my life, but I can't go to Disneyland. I can't take my wife to Paris. I can't go to my favorite restaurant. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And you saw record sales and, oh boy, anything durable. Cars, campers, boats, bicycles, stoves, you name it. Sales of this stuff was at levels we've never seen before. To give you some sense of this, if you look at kind of the, the trends in consumer spending on consumer durables, at one point in time during the pandemic, spending on consumer durables was 30% above normal. 30%. And it's still about 5 or 6 or 7% above normal. So a year and a half ago, we were told the world was going to come to an end. And now spending on these products is 30% above normal. We went from everybody shrinking inventories and shutting down operations to not, now not being able to keep their warehouse stocked. And this is what's driving supply chains to, well, right to the edge of, of collapse, as the case may be. They're scrambling to catch up. 
Everybody out there who's shipping is doing whatever they can to try and do what they need to do to keep things going. It was particularly profound during the holidays, largely because, you know, you could think about shippers being in one or two camps. The guys who have to have it right now and they have the money and then everybody else. Um, the cost of a, of, a, of a container to ship a container in went from something like $1,500 to $9,000 over that six-month period when logistics got completely crazed. But what that doesn't tell you is that most folks are out there went from $1,500 to, say, $2,500 because they were willing to wait. And then there were some folks, because they couldn't wait, who were spending $15,000 to get in the front of the line. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really where anybody, particularly, like if you're in construction, you're talking about bringing in nails, screws, basic stuff you need. You're not going to pay a premium of, of $10,000, $12,000 to get your container in front of the line. And so that's the stuff that's been sort of left behind, as the case may be. Here's the good news. We're now on the other side of Christmas. In theory, you're going to have a situation by which consumer spending will calm down. That should create typically a little bit more space in the logistics industry. And my hope is in the next three to four months, we'll start catching up on the uh, backlog, as the case may be. The supply chain problems are temporary, clearly temporary. We know they're going to catch up. That's not the big issue. I mean, and, and even when you start thinking about supply chains, let's remember the other part of it, which is this is not going to hurt the economy. It's just delaying, if you will, at some level, a recovery that's already in the cards because they've overstimulated the economy. Do you think this has long-term implications of, as it pertains to, quote, reshoring or uh, bringing the production of goods back to the U.S.? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Listen, let's go back to the last question. Okay. So let me see. You're not going to produce this stuff overseas in China. You're going to bring it back to the United States where you can't hire anybody? You know, we have a 3.9% unemployment rate as of December. 3.9% in the United States. We still have over 10 million job openings. Who's going to try and open a new factory in this environment, right? Not feasible. You're going to have to find what I would call close shoring. What you want to do is you want to get out of China, but go to Mexico. Uh, Right. Okay. Before we go here, I I want to just drill down a bit more on the construction industry to the the extent that you can. You know, I saw a graph, I think, over the weekend, which basically showed the increase on certain industries. And in 2021, construction was up, I think, 10, 10.2%. Uh, from the from the previous year, and, and we know that even in 2020 wasn't a bad year in construction. At least here in California, the governor deemed very early that construction workers were essential, uh, and so um, there was a slight dip. But overall, construction did decently well, and I think it did quite well comparatively in in 2021. Now that Congress has passed an infrastructure bill. And uh, the state uh, coffers are flush with an unprecedented amount of cash. And the governor has said as much as that he, he supports investing uh, some of that in infrastructure. What do you see in construction in 2022 and beyond? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a big question, right? So let's, let's divide construction into three buckets. We'll call okay. it residential, private, non-residential, and then public spending. Well, residential 
never declined. The housing market is, is super strong right now. Uh, prices continue to rise. Now, new home demand is slowing down a bit. That part of the market is, is getting a little uh, satiated, as the case may be. If you look at inventories of new homes for sale, it's starting to come up. But existing homes, those inventories are still tight. There's a lot of people trying to jump in the market. And my guess is, is residential spending will, will not see the same growth, but it'll be nice and steady and a solid number better than it was a couple of years ago for a while. Good news on that front. The non-residential space is particularly interesting because, to your point, if you look at, say, non-residential permits for new construction in the state, they absolutely collapsed. But actual spending on non-residential didn't go down by all that much. And indeed, it's starting to come back. It's starting to bounce back up again, particularly on um, what I would call the non-commercial space. That is to say, if you're not building offices or a retail uh, everything else is bouncing back pretty nicely right now. And I expect that's going to continue because, again, the economy is nice and healthy and people need that space. There are some questions in that traditional commercial space that have to be shaken out yet. But, of course, if you're in the public space, well, now you're looking at some pretty good numbers coming up in front of you. The last 15 years has seen some of the lowest levels of public investment in our national infrastructure that we've seen really in the last 50, 60 years, uh, surprisingly weak numbers, largely driven by the fact that Washington, D.C. kind of stepped back, if you will, from infrastructure investment game. They were looking more and more for state governments to, to carry the burden, as the case may be, and a lot of state governments weren't, weren't doing their part. Here we are in 2022, and state governments are flush with money, both from the federal as well as the fact that their tax revenues come roaring back. And some of that money is going to get spent on infrastructure. For example, here in the state, Governor Newsom has already talked about a pretty aggressive infrastructure plan. Mm -hmm. At the national level, um, they're still trying to get a national infrastructure plan passed. But there is a thought that they will get some number out there, perhaps not as, as big or as generous as the Biden administration first wanted. But something is going to happen. And, of course, a lot of these agencies, for example, think about how, how many of these transportation agencies here in the state are funded by taxable sales. Well, again, they are flush with cash right now. And as a result of that, again, they're going to have a little bit more in their budget to go ahead and start putting money into. So my anticipation is if you're in the construction sector, at least from a demand standpoint, you're going to be feeling pretty good over the course of the next couple of years. Your biggest problem, again, is going to be manning up. How do we meet this demand when I can't even keep crews? Um, that's going to be a big issue. And everybody's going to have to understand that at some level, they're going to have to offset those that demand with a higher cost basis, right? Your profitability is going to struggle uh, because of the fact that your labor costs are just going to be quite high, uh, mm -hmm. as well as some of your material costs, as the case may be. Now, the other part of it goes back to what I was saying about inflation and this huge government deficit. Remember, the economy we have today has a lot of heat in it. This is a highly stimulated economy, and it's highly stimulated largely, again, because of all this money toss up the economy. They have to back off. They just have to. This cannot go on forever. Now, the question is, is how hard of a crash will it be when we finally start withdrawing all this money from the economy? That is up in the air. And the answer is, we're not going to know because it all depends on how long this goes. If the government continues to pretend there's no problem, if the Fed continues to pretend that inflation isn't a big deal, and we pass even larger deficits and they don't back off, 
then yeah, maybe we have three years of growth in front of us, but then it's going to crash and crash really hard. If in the next six months, they start getting serious and start jacking up rates pretty quickly, if the bond market suddenly understands that, yeah, this inflation has got a little bit more sustainability and rates start to go up, that can cool things off. And maybe this will cool off quicker. You might have, shall we say, not as good of the next two years as you might have otherwise, but with less of a collapse out there at some point in the future. This is a period of time of phenomenal uncertainty. There's just no doubt about it. As a forecaster who is used to dealing with these numbers, looking at this cascade of figures and trying to, if you will, shake the chicken bones and figure out where it's going to go. Um, two years ago, I had a pretty good read on where this is going. Right now, man, it is so hard to figure out how this thing shakes out. This is truly unprecedented in as much as we've never had a government in the United States stimulate our economy this excessively. It just hasn't happened before. And when you throw that into the mix, you start to say, well, yeah, it feels good right now, but but at some point, right, the chicken's got to come home to roost. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a clean answer for you. And anybody who pretends they do doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, and you should probably be careful of that person. Yeah. More specifically, look, the music's playing, you got to dance. It's as simple as that. And I know that. But at the same time, everybody's got to be really cautious. Don't overextend yourself. Appreciate what you have right now. But don't think this is permanent. Don't make long-run investment decisions on the basis of a relatively short-run surge in demand. That is where companies get themselves into problem. That is where you can end up really going from feast to famine. So take it day by day. Again, expect there's got to be a retraction. Um, But in the meantime, hey, make some money. Well, that's always the the goal and the aim, and that's what Rebuild SoCal uh, advocates for, for our construction contractors and unionized workers. I guess I'll just leave it with one final question. I think you've you've answered it solidly, but you know we hear, and I, I'm stuck on inflation as a topic here, we hear in the media daily that, and from the government and, and others, that inflation is transitory. This is a blip. It's going to recede in a matter of months. And it seems from all of which you've just said and laid out the unprecedented nature of the quantitative easing or putting the stimulus money, that this isn't going away anytime soon. Absolutely not. Yeah. Inflation is the real deal. I have a tough time understanding how the Federal Reserve can be this benign about it. But then again, we live in a world where our policymakers seem to be in their own little bubble. You know, I tell you, this isn't new, right? Um, I found a, a great book recently written by Robert Schiller, Nobel Prize winner, called Narrative Economics, where he discusses the narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves. He makes the point that we're not mathematical economists in our head. We're storytelling creatures. That's what we are, right? We make narratives about everything. And the fact that the narrative can be so disconnected from reality is something we all need to take into account, right? It it just is. 
So we live in a world where the narratives become dangerously off base, and that will be driving the business cycle over the next few years. The best I can tell everybody listening to this podcast right now is there's no easy solution for a broken narrative, but we can all be a lot smarter listeners, as the case may be. We all have to go out and take a look at the data, find multiple sources, find credible sources, people we know who give us information based on analysis of data rather than analysis of polls. If you can be smart, if you can be a smart listener, these are circumstances which you can ultimately take advantage of. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I think I'll speak for myself and speak for our listeners. I think we're all smarter listeners for having you on this program. And so, Dr. Thornburg, we appreciate you giving us your thoughts, sharing with us your uh, opinions and expertise. And we will keep listening and keep paying attention uh, to the economy, keep learning, and hopefully keep making money. So, uh, sir, thank you again for your time. And I hope that you'll join us again in, in a year or so, and we'll revisit this conversation once again. That so sounds like a plan. Well, that's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Take care and goodbye.